at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again this morning. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 11. Throughout the book to this point, we have seen Paul correct church members for a great myriad of sins. We've had church members getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. We've had church members visiting brothels. Church members refusing to give, their con- give conjugal rights to their spouses. We've had church members suing one another. Uh, we've had church members basically just trying to one-up one another in any way possible. Paul has corrected all kinds of sins. The Corinthian church, we've discovered, is a very messy church that's filled with imperfect people. And what we've learned is that we are a lot more like them than we would like to admit. That we too are sinners who have been made saints, evil people that have been reconciled with God and one another by Jesus. And Paul's corrections have served us well. But I, I think it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that Paul really kind of lets loose as he reminds them of the gospel that they were saved to, reminds them of the message of the cross and resurrection, the message of Christianity. We spoke last week about how the Corinthians had drifted away from this, that they'd become more about death than life, that they, like the majority culture around them, had begun to think not in terms of a physical resurrection. Right? Paul, Paul in chapter 15 here is correcting a crack in their theological foundation. Right? They, they have gone away from the bodily resurrection of Christ and have begun saying things like, well, the resurrection has kind of already happened. We're already kind of living the, the fullness of the Christian life. We, we've taken hold of our hope completely. And Paul is saying, no, 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 my friends. The resurrection is an essential part of Christianity. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And, and any Christianity that is empty of the blood of Christ, any Christianity that leaves Jesus' body buried somewhere in the Middle East is no Christianity at all. So he gently rebukes the Corinthians here. He's going to make clear for them the message of the gospel. And that's where we focused most of our time last week. And so by way of quick summation, we want to say what that message is explicitly. Uh, Paul outlines it for us in verses 3 and 4 when he writes one of the earliest of Christian creeds. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so the the message has three principal parts. The first one is that all men and women, all of us, have rebelled against God and earned his just and infinite wrath. God rightly could have acted against us who acted evil by eliminating the human race. But he chose not to do that in his mercy. Instead, he decided to end evil without ending us, which meant a delay to ending evil. And the way that he would end evil without ending us was through the cross of Christ. God, before time began, knew that we would rebel against him. 
and knew that in order for us to be reconciled to him, it would take the death of Christ. It would require him to take up residence in the womb of a virgin. It would require him to live a perfect life, a perfect life that you and I were meant to live but never could. It would require him to die a substitutionary death, the death that you and I deserved to die. And it would require a resurrection from the dead. And third principle part is that anyone who has faith in Jesus, who was God in the flesh and came and lived and died for us, anybody who has faith in him can be saved from their sins and have the hope of a future resurrection. Anyone who trusts in this Jesus no longer has to look at death as an enemy, but can almost welcome it as a friend. Because for the Christian, death is merely a portal through which we step into the eternal life together with God. That's the message. This week what I want to do is I want to take a look at the messengers. I don't know if you, have you ever heard the phrase, the medium is the message? Maybe you haven't, but, but the idea underneath of it is that your message, whoever is communicating your message or however that message is being communicated, you can actually learn all of that from the medium, right? I'm not a full buyer of this ideology, but I, I do think there's some truth to it. But we learn a lot about Christianity from the witnesses, from those who witness to it. We learn a lot about Christianity from its messengers, and Paul draws our attention to a few of them this morning. And what we'll learn from them is three things, that the resurrection really did happen, who the message of the gospel is for, and the transforming power of the message. We'll focus primarily on the latter two, who the gospel is for, and how the gospel transforms want you to see in our time together this morning that the gospel is for anyone who repents and that it changes everyone who believes. And I want to exhort you to be the church by embodying the gospel. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, you are so good to us. We do not deserve to know you. We, we don't deserve even a raindrop of happiness, and yet you have poured an ocean of blessings upon our heads. You have given us far more than we could ever imagine. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this message. Proclaims a truth. That through Jesus, we can be rescued from our sins. Thank you that we can enjoy a foretaste of the future, even now. God, we thank you that you've given us your word to help us persevere in our faith. Help us grow in our relationship with you. 
give us your spirit that we might submit to it and be changed by it. God, we thank you that as Christians we, we know that we have never arrived, but that by your grace we are always changing, 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 becoming more and more like Christ. We pray that you would take your expert hands and press us more into the image of Jesus this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at the first 11 verses. I'm going to read them all to you, and then we'll double back and uh, hit on some of these characters that Paul brings to our attention. So chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time. He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Paul wants to make clear in these first 11 verses that Jesus really did get up from the dead. And he's saying, if you have any doubts about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, go and talk to these people. They are witnesses. They can verify these events. There are 500 plus of them. Granted, some of them have, have, have died is what he's saying when he says fallen asleep. But for the Christian to fall asleep is or I'm sorry, to die is almost like falling asleep because it's, a, it's something from which you will wake up. Just ask them, the resurrection is a reality. Let's take a look at these witnesses to which Paul points to verify the resurrection. See the first in verse 5. He, meaning Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. The Greek for rock or Cephas is Petros. You might recognize it in English. It is the name Peter, right? So when when Jesus first calls Peter to himself, he he says, uh, Simon, son of John, you're no longer going to be called Simon, I'm going to call you Rocky, right? I'm going to call you Peter. He he renames him. It's just, he points to Peter right here at the front end. And for me, I go, well, what do we know about 
Peter. And I think of that initial call. And he's out fishing. He's got this little fishing business going on with, with John and them. And they're out fishing and they can't catch anything at all. And then Jesus kind of comes up and says to them, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. And they're like, yeah, that will work. Really great idea. And they throw the nets on the other side of the boat and then they've got so many fish, they can't count them and the boat begins to sink. At which point, Peter, when he comes ashore, falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus is like, Peter, get up. No longer are you going to fish for fish, but from now on, you will be a fisher of men. Follow me. And Peter and his boys, they leave their business, they leave their nets, they leave their boats, and they follow Jesus. And the next major scene in Peter's life that I think of is that glorious confession in Matthew 16. Everybody is talking about Jesus. Well, well, who is he? And some folks are like, he's John the Baptist reincarnated. And others are like, he's one of the prophets like Jeremiah. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, brashly and boldly as ever, speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The Spirit revealed it to you. It says, on this rock, right? It's a play on words, on his name, on this rock, the rock of his confession, Peter's the rock. I will build my church. And then Jesus proceeds to tell the disciples that he's headed for the cross. He's going to to die. But remember, Peter and the boys, they they don't think that, that Jesus is a king that's come to die. They think he's the conquering king. When they think Messiah, they think triumphant victor. They think he's going to overthrow Rome. And so when Jesus says he's going to die, Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, look, I knew I told you I was going to follow you, but you need to follow me in this, all right? Not going to die. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you have not on your mind the things of God, but the things of God. Of men. How like Peter are we? I'll follow you, Jesus, until I don't like what you say. Then I'm going to return to following myself, or I'm going to tell you where to go and I'll follow you. I'm like a limo driver. Jesus would not be Peter's assistant. The next major event in Peter's life I think of is, is on that night when Jesus is betrayed. Remember, Peter kind of follows Jesus along, and while Jesus is up uh, being um, talked to, he's down in the courtyard next to a charcoal fire warming himself, and a little tiny uh, servant girl comes up, and she's like, I I think you were with this Jesus guy. And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, not me. And she asks him two more times, and the third time he even curses and says, I don't know the man, and denies Jesus three times. Fast forward to the end of the book of John. Jesus has raised from the dead, and we have that wonderful scene where you've got Peter and uh, the guys are out fishing again all night long, and it's early morning, and the sun's just coming up over the horizon, and they haven't caught anything. And they're kind of, you know, we're going back into the shore. We're going to give up, and they see a, a shadowy figure on the beach. It's Jesus, but they don't know that yet. 
And this shadowy figure says, hey guys, why don't you try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat? They shrug their shoulders, they throw the nets in, they begin to, to pull the catch in, but it's, it's so heavy, it's weighing them down. There are 153 fish in the net. It's a whole lot. And John recognized what's going on. And th- this is an encore performance of the first time Jesus called us to himself. This is a, a repeat. And he looks up and he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And that's when Peter like, ties his garment around himself, jumps in the water and swims to the shore to Jesus. They bring the fish, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, cooks breakfast for them, and they all eat fish. And then after that breakfast, that famous conversation with Peter, where Jesus asks him three times, Simon Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says yes, and three times Jesus tells him, feed my sheep or love my people. If you love me, love my people. Care for my people. And that conversation ends with Jesus saying to Peter, follow me. Cephas, Peter, is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He is a messenger of the gospel, and he teaches us about the gospel which he proclaims. See, he shows us that this message is not for perfect people. It's not for the most important people in society. He was an unimportant fisherman who denied Jesus, was called Satan by Jesus. This gospel is for screw-ups like Peter. It's for screw-ups like you and me. The next witness that Paul calls to the stand The twelve. See that, Cephas? Then to the twelve. The twelve here is a title for that group of people that were in Jesus' entourage during his pre-cross ministry. Uh, Judas obviously wouldn't have been around any longer. Uh, And so what's what's going on in this title, it's a little bit like the Big 12 in college football. It's called the Big 12, but it only has nine teams in it right? It's a, a, the 12, is it 10 now? I don't know, I can't keep track, I think, whatever. Uh, It's a title that keeps track of who was in Jesus' group during his pre-cross ministry, and he's saying Jesus showed up to these folks, but what, what we learn about when we think about the 12 together is that throughout Jesus' ministry, they're most famous for just not getting it, right? They always kind of miss the point, and my favorite story of them messing things up is Jesus has fed 5,000 people, he's fed 4,000 people with a little more than a couple of loaves of bread and fish, and he tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They look around at one another and they start talking about bread. And what he means when he's telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he's like, beware of their unbelief, don't you know, don't get taken captive by their false teaching. But they're worried about if they, you know, went to the store and got bread. They're like, is he mad because we didn't get any loaves of bread? I'm going to read part of it to you. Mark 8. I'll start at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, Why does this generation demand a sign? 
Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they told him. And he said to them, don't you understand? This group didn't quite get Jesus right away. They understood that he was good, that they wanted to follow him, but they they didn't quite understand that he was Lord right from the get-go. He shows us that the gospel is for people who don't get everything right away. It's for people who are in process. It's for those who will be willing to learn from Jesus. We also find the the 12, when they discover that Jesus is is resurrected, they're in a room with a locked door, worried that somebody's going to come and find them and kill them as a consequence of their being in Jesus' entourage. And then he just kind of shows up. Uh, like either he unlocks the door somehow or walks through the door, like phases through it, I don't know. But, but he's there bodily with them. And he says, peace to you. Even though each one of them had deserted him, they were hiding like a bunch of cowards. They show us that the gospel is for cowards. It's for the cowardly and the confused. The gospel is, is for anyone who will believe. Then we read he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. 500 plus people, one resurrection appearance. 500 nameless people. This is maybe my favorite uh, medium is the message kind of deal here, where these 500 people teach us who the gospel is for. It's for those who aren't really worthy of being named because you wouldn't know who they are. The unfamous, the unimportant, the poor, the forgotten, the fragile. The gospel is for all who will believe. Verse 7, he appeared to James and to the apostles. The apostles here are to be separated from, it, I guess it includes, but is not limited to the 12. See, the 12 were, every, were the guys that were with Jesus pre-cross ministry. The apostles are those who have seen the resurrected Jesus, but weren't part of the 12. Make sense? Right, so they've been commissioned to tell and give witness of his resurrection. The James here is the brother of Jesus. 
And his story is also interesting. We remember when we see him for the first time uh, in Mark chapter 3, people are crowding around Jesus. He's been casting out demons, and they're saying, this is the Son of God. And he's saying, hey, shut up. Don't tell anybody yet. It's not time. And he's being, had crowds pressed in on him, like he's in his house, and he can't even eat, the text says, because the people are just all around him. I always picture when I read that text being in an airplane, like trying to eat food off that little tray, or you just don't have any elbow room. But they're pressed in on him, he can't even eat. And we read the words in Mark 3.21, when his, that's Jesus' family, heard this, they set out to restrain him, because they said, he's out of his mind. Now, I know it's hard if your brother is rolling around going, I'm the son of God. It's probably really hard to believe in him. And so we can cut James some slack. But he's gone beyond. He's, going, he's with the rest of his family going, Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. We need to get a straight jacket on him and get him into the asylum. It's probably not helped much when like, later on they uh, come and they can't get into the house because there's a bunch of people around and somebody tells them, like, hey, Jesus, uh, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside looking for you. And Jesus looks around and says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And looks at all of them. My mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my father. And James is outside like, this guy is out of his mind. He thinks he's crazy. The gospel is for the greatest of skeptical cynics. The gospel is for those who could never believe that they would believe in Jesus. It's for anyone upon whom God sets his grace. Anyone who will see the truth of Christ's resurrection and believe. Verse 8, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul killed people for believing in the risen Christ. Remember that famous story? He's actually on his way to do some more persecuting of the church on the road to Damascus, and Jesus just shows up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's how much Jesus identifies with his church. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul is like, I am in a world of trouble. And eventually he falls down and he calls him Lord. And from that moment forward, his life is changed. He's saved by the grace of God, even though he was a, a murderer. He, he seemed hopeless and helpless. The, the language he uses in verse 8 says one born at the wrong time, or you might have one abnormally born. There's not really a good word to bring this across in English. And it actually refers to any kind of infant death. So a, a, a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Um, lots of folks suggest it's a, a botched abortion that, that Paul is referring to himself as. He's saying, last of all, he appeared to me, the botched abortion. And his point is that I was so wicked. So helpless, so beyond hope. I had no chance at life. 
and then he appeared to me. The risen Christ appeared to me. I'm least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God, but Jesus saved me, the helpless and hopeless one. Paul teaches us that the gospel is for murderous, hopeless people. And it's for the worst of the worst. There's no sin that can separate us from God once it has been covered by the blood of Christ. How, though? How how can the gospel save the cowardly and the screw-ups and the poor and the unimportant and the murderer and the cynic and the skeptic? And, and the answer is seen in Paul's life. It's seen in each one of these people's lives. It is by grace. We see it in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace alone. Love Ephesians 2, uh, the first 10 verses of that chapter just kind of blow my mind. I love it. Paul writing as one who was hopeless and as good as dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We also all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Naturally, left unto ourselves, we were without hope. And then verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Jesus is the hero of human history. We don't save him. We don't do anything for him. He saves us. He does everything for us. This is really hard to wrap our minds around because naturally we want to do things for ourselves. We want to earn it. We, we want to help Jesus. But I, see, I saw this even in, in my kid this morning. Right, so Elliot this morning is playing a game. It doesn't make any sense, by the way. But, but he tells me that Jesus has been eaten by a dinosaur, and we have to find the dinosaur, and we're going to save Jesus. And then when I save Jesus, I'm gonna have all, he's going to give me all of his power. I said, we're going to, theological problems aside here, 
I said, just, just what I said to you moments before, son, we don't save Jesus. He saves us. So you're not the hero of this story. You're not the dragon slayer. Son, you're the, the princess trapped in the tower, waiting to be saved. You're the damsel in distress. Jesus is the unknown king who comes and kills the dragon and saves you to himself. You don't help God. I love, uh, there's a church in Nashville. Uh, Ray Ortland is the pastor of it. And they have a mantra that's three parts. And I just love it. Uh, it says, I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. I, I love it. And his point is, I'm a complete idiot. And what he means is that there's nothing that I could ever do that's going to cause God to go, oh, Impressive. No, I need him completely. I am stained with sin, but my future is incredibly bright because I've put my faith in Christ. And, and when I do that, I receive the favor of God. My stains are washed away and I get to wear the white of victory. And then the last part, anyone can get in on this. The gospel is for anyone who will turn from their sins and believe. That's why Peter says at Pentecost, what should we do if Jesus is raised from the dead? And he says, repent and be baptized. Believe. Live out the Christian life. The cross is a gift. Right? Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you have received gifts for, I think, any amount of time, really, you've learned that some gifts are harder to receive than others, right? I don't know if you've ever opened a gift and been like, really? Kind of disappointed, but I get it. So maybe, for example, it's your birthday and somebody, uh, you know, is wrapped up. And you tear the wrapping off and there's a dieting book inside, along with some breath mints. And you're going, what? Okay, I'm thank, thank you. This is a little hard to receive, I get it. My, my, my habits and my health are not maybe up to standard. A hard gift to receive. If you truly receive that gift, you're not just going to, you know, throw the breath mints somewhere in the book on the shelf to gather dust. You'll use them. If you're wise, you'll use them. And what you'll see is as you follow the guidelines in the dieting book, assuming it's a good one, not one of those that causes you to give up meat or anything like that, but assuming it's a good one, is you'll get healthier over time. There will be a great benefit in receiving this gift that was hard to receive. The, the gospel is the same way. It's a gift of God, but it's so hard to receive because it tells us that 
You are not the center of your life. You are not the hero of your story. You cannot rescue yourself. Only Jesus can. The cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. It stands against anything you think you could do to put God in your debt. This is what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions. All the other world religions say, do these things and you can be made right with God. Do this, keep these rules, and you can be made right with God. And Christianity says, that's just not going to work. Like, you know who you are. You know that you're not able to keep these things. That you're not able to, to, to do enough good things to make yourself right with God. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it's your goodness that keeps you from coming to him. Because you think, really, I'm a good person. I didn't kill anybody. I only told a couple lies. I, I, don't, I don't really need grace to be saved. I go to church on Sunday. And I've done enough good things. And to think like that is to devalue the, the blood of Christ. No, the cross was the only way for God to save us. All the other world religions say, do. Make yourself right with God. Only Christianity says, done. God has done it for you. You need merely to receive the gift of salvation and trust in Christ alone. And when you do that, your heart will be changed. You will be born again to a living hope, the hope that is in Christ Jesus you will have a heart that begins to beat not for the things of the world, but for the things of God. L look at the lives of some of these that are listed as witnesses. Paul was persecuting the church, went from persecuting the church to being its greatest missionary, the author of the majority of the New Testament. You know how Paul dies? Well, he dies for his faith in Rome, beheaded by Nero. Look at James, the brother of Jesus. Thought Jesus was crazy. He becomes a pillar in the church. He dies. He's thrown from the pinnacle of the temple for his faith. He doesn't, he's not quite dead, and so then they stone him. He still refuses to recount his faith, and somebody finally ends his life with a club to the head. And Peter, he denied Jesus to a little girl to save his life. Peter dies for his faith, crucified upside down. As he didn't see himself worthy to die in the same manner as Christ, he asks them to flip the cross upside down. What would, what would, cause, what would cause a coward to live so courageously? What would cause somebody who thought Jesus to be crazy to preach him risen from the dead? What, what would cause a persecutor of the church, somebody who said this is heresy, it need, it's a sect that needs to be snuffed out, to become its biggest propagator? I'll tell you what would cause it. A resurrection from the dead. The resurrection really happened. 
The gospel is true. And it changes you. It changed these men. And it changes you, I think, in every way, but maybe most significantly in this way. It puts your hope outside of this lifetime. And so it changes how you live. You, your hope for the future determines how you live now. Right? We see this all the time. This is why college students endure four years of arduous study and really high rates for classes. Well, they have the hope of a nice career after they graduate. It's why you save for retirement. You have the hope of financial security when your working days have gone by the wayside. Right? It's, it's why I give rewards to my children when they are learning to put their waste in the proper place. Right? They, they look forward to the reward, and so they act accordingly. They want this reward, they're going to act accordingly. The hope for the Christian, the reward of the Christian, is in the next life. It's in the resurrection life together with God. And so that changes how we live now. Instead of investing all of our time and all of our efforts on us, we are free to invest in others. We are free to invest in making this good news known. That this life is not all there is. That the reason death feels so alien and so awful is because it is. This is, not, this is not the way it's supposed to be. We were made to live forever with God. But we sinned. Yet God in his mercy continued to love us and made a way for us to be made right with him. Through Christ, this message transforms those who believe it. Recently, there was a confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals for Amy Barrett. And during this, uh, I guess they, the senators kind of get around and question you and stuff during this confirmation process. But one of the senators said to her in a, she meant it to be derogatory. She said to her, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And she was referring to Miss Barrett's faith in a negative way. The dogma lives loudly within you. And immediately I thought, she has given us some great t-shirts and mugs to make. The dogma lives loudly within. Because this is the goal of the Christian. That we would embody the gospel. That when somebody looks at our lives and they see what we do and what we write and how we speak, that they would go, the dogma or the doctrine of Christianity lives loudly within them. When this message changes you, when you see the, the truth that Christ died for our sins and that he is raised from the dead and that he has promised us that we too shall raise from the dead, it changes how you live. 
My hope is that we would be the church, that this dogma would live loudly within us, and that we would together embody the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had to hear from your word. We thank you for the cross and for the resurrection. We thank you that we have the hope of a future because you chose not to give us the infinite punishment we deserve, but instead to lay that punishment upon Christ. Thank you that we are justified by his resurrection and that all the favor that is due to him is now due to us because we have been united to him in faith. God, it is unbelievable that that you rejoice in us, that that you, you like us, that you love us, that you plan on spending eternity with us and giving to us every good thing. Thank you for that. We pray that this good news would cause us to give our lives to make this good news known. That we would invest our lives here with the hope of returns in eternity. Thank you for allowing us to participate in your work of saving men and women to yourself. Help us to be faithful servants. Lord, thank you that you love us on our best day and on our worst day the same by your grace. Thank you that you are good. And we pray in Jesus' name.